You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate. What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. From Sugar 23, I'm Angela Ledgerwood, and this is Lit Up. Now, I have to give you a warning. Do not listen to this episode on an empty stomach, because you will be salivating at the end of it. We have Anya von Bresman on the pod today. Now, she has three James Beard Awards. She has written for every single publication on food you can imagine. She's the author of six cookbooks and two memoirs. And today we're going to talk about her book, National Dish, Around the World in Search of Food, History and the Meaning of Home. Now, imagine a dream scenario where you want to write a book and you decide that you're going to go to some of the best food capitals in the world, France, Italy, Spain, Turkey, and Japan. She's traveled to all of these countries, spending about a month in each place to examine what is so special about national dishes, but also what is so complicated about talking about authenticity when it comes to food. I hope you love this episode. I'm sure it'll make you ravenous. You will see just how brilliant she is in this conversation. Thank you for listening. So I'm so thrilled to have you on Lit Up. Before we get into this fabulous and transporting book of yours that's called National Dish, Around the World in Search of Food, History and the Meaning of Home, I want to ask if you can recall one of your most memorable meals. Yes, I can. It was a historic meal. I was in Abkhazia, a breakaway region of Georgia, on the day that Soviet Union fell apart. It was Christmas, December 25. Uh, I think it was 1990. Yes, 1990. And there was this feast given in our honor by the hosts, because Abkhazians and Georgians are very hospitable. There was uh, Abkhazian polenta, 
that was wild duck. The table was just absolutely covered with food. And suddenly everyone froze and looked at the TV. And there was Gorbachev making his resignation speech. And on December 26th, we woke up in a different country with a massive hangover. Oh, my goodness. That's quite a story. There is a great quote in your book that talks about how the situation that you eat something in can infuse those flavors in your memory in such a searing and unique way that maybe you'd have the same meal at your little bodega around the block and it wouldn't have that that magical uh, staying power. Um, you write about national dishes, but we have to start with this idea of, well, what is a nation, you know, before we get to national dishes? Can you talk about how complicated that was to write about? Oh, absolutely. Well, I think my anecdote about Abkhazia and Gorbachev's resignation illustrates it so vividly because I went to sleep in one country or I started feasting in one country, which was... Abkhazia, which was then part of Georgia, which was itself part of the Soviet Union. And I woke up and there was no longer a Soviet Union. And Georgia was an independent nation. And in a way, I saw with my eyes as we drove post-December 25th through this post-Soviet landscape, we literally saw new currencies being minted, new signs in local languages being put up and replacing the Russian signs. I remember in Ukraine, very vividly in light of the war that's happening now, there was Russian spelling for Kiev in Russian. And I remember people were throwing it in the trash and replacing it with the Ukrainian spelling, which is Kyiv. Uh, so that was a very vivid lesson in how recent nations can be, how sudden they can be. And returning to post-Soviet spaces in the last 20, well, 30 years now, and seeing how they constructed their national identities, their national myths, their flags, their anthems, and their national cuisines, is a reminder how absolutely recent nations are. Because when you think about it, before the French Revolution, uh, 1789, we didn't have the nations that we have today. Uh, France was an absolute, absolutist kingdom. Italy was a collection of little states. Uh, Germany wasn't unified. Japan was a collection of disparate islands with no national identity that unified them whatsoever. Greece became independent only in 1830s, and that was kind of the beginning of the end of the Ottoman Empire. Syria, Lebanon, Turkey, Israel didn't exist before the collapse of the Ottoman Empire following First World War. So just think about how incredibly complex this all is and what a puzzle it was to solve. But that's what makes food such a fascinating lens through which to examine so many things. And in National Dish, I chose to look at creations of nations and nationalism and national identity. And so why France as that first country you delve into? Because France and the French Revolution uh, was really what supplied our contemporary idea of a nation as a sovereign entity with a constitution in the name of equal citizens with unified laws and a unified language. So that was really important for the formation of other nations throughout the 19th century. But France also very early on recognized that cuisine was part of its cultural asset uh, and what they call now soft power. 
France exported so many things about food to the world from words like chef and gastronomy, from the sauces. Half the world still uses today, you know, your bechamel, your bernays, the white talk, the white headgear that the chefs wear. And it was in France also, starting slightly before the French Revolution, where the restaurant was born as we know it. Because restaurant comes from restaurant, which is a restorative broth. And the first restaurants were actually urban spas uh, where the wealthy could go at any time of the day, order from a menu with prices, and have these little healthy tidbits. Uh, so it was a very different idea, but the word, the institution, uh, it all comes from France. And France is still so stuck on the idea of cuisine being its you know, soft power, its cultural asset. And I kind of wanted to examine where that notion is today. Well, when you go back to France in the book with Barry, your your partner and husband, you have such a cosmopolitan, rich international experience. And you can can you tell us a little about that in contrast to when you went with your mother originally? Well, France was always a bit of a drag for me, to be honest. I'm not a Francophile. I'm not someone who reminisces about crocs of terrine and oysters. My first encounter with uh, Paris. My first encounter with Paris was actually pretty bleak. We were refugees from the former USSR in the States. My mom was besotted, was obsessed with Paris because she could read about it in Balzac, in Zola. She was dreaming of Paris. So she was cleaning houses at the time. She was an English teacher, but we were destitute refugees. But she saved up for this trip to Paris. And I remember it was raining nonstop. Paris was so arrogant. It treated us so badly because we were just like these poor people, couldn't afford anything. I found the food just unbearable. I mean, oysters, I was 13, can you imagine? I was like gagging half the time. And just this idea of treating the provincials badly, it's also part of the French myth part of the Parisian myth. When I returned on this trip with all these bad memories and all the memories of being there professionally, reviewing restaurants, eating all this rich food that was just so not to my taste, we stayed in the multicultural neighborhood, the 13th, which really reminded me of Jackson Heights, Queens, where I live in New York, where we have 168 languages spoken. So we were in the 13th, you know, the post-whole, you know, the post-colonial scene, so many people from North Africa, from Indochina, all these different foods. But all over Paris, what I found so to be such a relief, that people seem to really be giving up the idea of the French culinary supremacy. Like, I came there to write about pot à feu, which is the kind of French boiled dinner which they considered their national dish. And everyone was like, oh, Anya, there's this great spot for Bauer burgers or for maki rolls or for uh, this amazing mescal bar and chocolate babka, <laughs> you know, was making a splash. So everyone wanted to sort of show off this new multicultural Paris. And, you know, this set off the question that I, I tried to resolve not successfully because it doesn't have revolution, uh, resolution in the book, which is how do we deal with the idea of national identity, national cuisine, national myths in this era of intense globalization where you can eat ramen in the most remote villages in the Andes because it's so many indigenous people rely on ramen 
actually, where pizza is everywhere, where sushi is everywhere. Uh, so what happens? Well, also, there's so much conversation at the moment, and rightfully so, about appropriation. And it seems when you get most excited, it's when people are borrowing and riffing on all different dishes that inspire them. How do you thread that line? It's a complex issue, the issue of cultural appropriation, because it assumes that there are some traditions exist that are pure and unadulterated. But of course, that throughout human history, traditions and cultures are hybrid uh, and adaptable, and they travel and they migrate. And the world, in fact, was much more globalized uh, a thousand years ago, 2,000 years ago, because the dominant political structure was empires. Empires are multicultural. Empires involve population exchanges, migrations, deportations. So you already have that trade. Uh, so all the cultures, especially culinary cultures, are very complicated and hybrid. The other issue is who can own a culture. If you consider that a lot of the national borders that we take for granted today didn't exist today, didn't exist, well, didn't even exist when I was eating my feast in Apazia, right? So who can claim cultural ownership? What it is, though, we use food as a proxy to talk about so many other issues. What we're really talking about when we're talking about cultural appropriation is horrible racial injustice that exists not just in American restaurant kitchens, but like in, in every, on every part of society. We're talking about power imbalances between, say, Israelis and Palestinians when we talk about hummus, who owns hummus. And at this point, my feeling is maybe it's more useful to talk about these issues directly because they're important issues. They need to be talked about. But what changes the world? What can affect change? It's political engagement, political action, right? So I always joke that for every time we sort of abuse the term cultural appropriation, if there was a donate button, if we can, you know, immediately get engaged and do something for the cause that we support, it will be very helpful. Well, you mentioned hummus then, and I know that you spend a lot of time in Istanbul, and that is one of the cities that you go to. And just connecting it to what you said about empire, could you tell us about their national dish, what it's like spending so much time in Istanbul? Well, actually, I have a home in Istanbul, a second home. So we've been semi-living there, spending a few months a year there since I bought it in 2007. And Turkey has changed a lot since. A lot of political stuff went on. And I didn't choose one particular dish for Istanbul. I chose a feast, an Ottoman potluck, I call it. It's a feast of meze, you know, the small plates of Turkey. Mm -hmm. And the idea was that as Ottoman Empire was so formerly multicultural, Armenians, Greeks, Albanians, I would go and speak to these almost extinct minorities and have them bring a dish. So I speak to a Jewish friend who is bringing a dish to a potluck, a very special eggplant dish that is almost medieval, and because Jews have been in Istanbul since they were expelled from Spain in 1492, the, that fateful year, and they preserved some of the cooking traditions, but are now unfortunately disappeared. I, I'm speaking to an Armenian, 
lady Armenian cookbook writer who is bringing an Armenian dish called Topik, which is a chickpea pate with caramelized onion, which kind of represents the Armenian identity in, in Turkey. I have an Albanian liver. It's a fried liver with onion that is inspired by the Albanians uh, who used to be such an important part of the Ottoman Empire. Then I'm speaking to a Greek person because until Turkey became a republic in 1923 and aggressively homogenous and aggressively nationalistic, it was there was no Turkey actually. It was there was not even an idea of Turkey. It was Ottoman Empire, very multicultural, and Greeks were a really important presence in Istanbul. In fact, they ran most of the restaurants, most of the culinary culture is Greek, but they were expelled and deported and left from the 50s to the 60s. So I'm looking at all these memories, cultural memories of Ottoman multiculturalism in this uh, Meze banquet that I call the Ottoman potluck and trying to see what happens to a cuisine of a multicultural empire when the country becomes an aggressively nationalist nation-state. And the answers are very surprising, but you have to read the book. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard-to-recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. That's fair enough. That's fair enough. Well, where should we go next? We have Italy, Japan, Mexico, and Spain. What are you craving next to tell us about? I'm always craving pizza. I'm a total pizza fanatic. So researching a chapter on pizza and pasta al pomodoro in Naples for a month was really a dream assignment. I mean, I can eat pizza every day of my life and having it in Naples from the wood-burning oven, you know, that small size that they do it was really a dream. 
My partner is, his family comes from around Naples, you know, back when they were goat farmers before coming to America. And so this is such a huge part of the story in your book about how actually it was after so many people left that poorer part of Italy that the pizza became so iconic. So can you tell us about the pizza effect, but then just describe for us one of the best pizzas you had there so I can smell it and imagine the whole taste sensation? Well, it's it bakes in 90 seconds flat on the floor of a wood-burning oven. It's blistered, you know, with these bubbles because when it's good yeast, when it's natural yeast, when you cut it on a cross-section, it's got these tiny oxygen bubbles. And that's what makes pizza light and special. And when a good pizzaiolo does it, when you have a long, slow fermentation, beautiful tomatoes on top, very nice mozzarella, basil, this is your simple margarita, but it's the fire. It's like eating bread, a combination of bread and live fire, which is just so iconic. And there's something about it that's almost primordial. So, yes, I'm, <laughs> I'm salivating thinking about it myself. But pizza, we argue about so many other dishes of, about cultural ownership, like who does hummus belong to again. Pizza is indelibly tied to Naples. There are no questions there. Uh, in 1760s, more or less, the tomato, which obviously was not native to Europe, it arrived from the Americas, and it took a long time for it to be accepted. But finally, the tomato goes on this flatbread, baked in a very traditional oven, the likes of which they find in Pompeii, and a little bit of cheese, uh, although not always. So you have this proto-pizza. And it's a, street, it's a food of the Neapolitan poor. Because Naples in the 19th century, imagine this, is 10 times the urban density of Victorian London, which is already very dense. So it's like one of the most overcrowded cities in the planet. The center of Naples is still today, it's almost as crowded per capita as Bombay, although much smaller. So pizza is your salvation. It costs only one soldo, which is kind of a penny. It's fairly nutritious. Uh, you can eat it on the streets. So like, well, there's all this itinerant roaming pizza vendors that are carrying the stufo, the sort of box to keep the pizza warm on their heads. So imagine, you know, everyone is eating pizza. Outside Naples, though, it's almost not known. In Italian, pizza means something crushed flat. So in 19th century cookbooks, even in 20th century cookbooks, it describes something like a sweet pie, like a crostata, for instance. And it's scorned. By northern, those northern Italians who tasted it, Carlo Collodi, the creator of Pinocchio, described pizza as complicated filth. And he goes on and on just to describe how absolutely disgusting it is. So the northerners are scorning the south. They're really dissing, you know. They, for them, it's, you know, they still call it Africa, believe it or not. I met northerners in Naples recently who said, oh, question Africa. So to them, it's like this strange, exotic, orientalized South with this weird food. And then people begin, Italy unifies in 1860s. Long, chaotic process. Leaves a lot of the people, especially in the South, even poorer than they were. The taxation is horrible. The hunger is horrible. So you have one of the largest recorded outmigrations in human history. All this southern Italians moving to the Americas. 
And the Neapolitans begin to open the pizzeria. And because pizza is such a genius invention, right? Who can beat it? Right? Live fire, bread, tomato, cheese. It becomes this huge success. And so the pizza effect is actually a term coined by a Hindu anthropologist to describe yoga. Because yoga was apparently no big deal in India. But then it really took off outside India and then was reintroduced to India as something, you know, with unique power and status. More or less the same thing happens with pizza. So pizza slowly from there on, and especially after World War II, with the GIs kind of going to Naples and craving it. After the mid-century, from the 60s, 70s, and especially the 80s, it becomes an all-Italian food in Italy. When already it's completely globalized and everyone knows it. We've talked about imperialism and colonialism and empire and war. And World War II shapes so much of the food we know today, and particularly in Japan. Can you tell us about uh, ramen and rice? But also, I really was ignorant about the influx of wheat that came after World War II and just how that influenced food in Japan. Also, yeah, from Naples, I moved to Tokyo. I spent a month in Tokyo to research ramen and rice. And there's a lot of similarities between pizza and ramen because it's kind of this cheap starch that fed the masses, that was quite disrespected. Ramen is a Chinese-originated dish, of course, that comes from the Chinatowns of the treaty ports of Japanese cities like Yokohama and Nagasaki. Between the two world wars, it becomes more or less accepted. It leaves the Chinatown ghetto. But it's only after the Second World War when there's a massive reconstruction effort and everyone, all the workers are eating ramen, that it becomes naturalized and respected and revered as a Japanese national dish, almost in ingratitude for feeding the nation during these difficult years. But the interesting story is that to avoid... Japan is completely devastated after the war. There's starvation. People are dying. Obviously, they were the aggressor. So to avoid the Red Scare, to avoid the spread of communism, the American government is sending its uh, agri-surpluses to Japan. Right? So it needs food. And one of the main exports is wheat. So there's all this propaganda for American wheat, American. The Japanese children are getting American-style lunches until the 1970s with spam, wheat. They didn't even get rice until a certain point. So there is this kind of wheat imperialism that really fundamentally changed the Japanese diet. And then, of course, in, in the 1950s, a guy who is in fact Chinese from Taiwan called Momofuku Ando makes one of the world's greatest food invention, instant ramen. Just add water and there you have a meal. And now the documents show that in fact he was convinced by Japanese authorities, because he was very well connected, to use that American wheat. And he feels like through this he saved uh, a traditional Asian diet because his argument was, well, we could, they, well, they could have been hooked on bread, but at least I saved the noodle, which is an Asian form, using American wheat, but this Asian staple. So it's, it's all very twisted and fascinating, and it's just another reminder of how food 
is about so many things besides just what you eat. Absolutely. As I was reading the book, I was thinking about I'm Australian born and, you know, our culinary traditions, I wouldn't say have, have captured the world's attention. Avocado toast doesn't seem to tell that many stories, but... Well, it's huge. Uh, Avocado so, toast is like the number one thing. So it, it tells it every kind of story. Yes. But I was thinking of a couple of things. We have Anzac biscuits, which were sent to the troops, the Australian and New Zealand troops in the wars that would keep a long time. And I made them recently, you know, being a little homesick or lamingtons or pavlova, but... Pavlova um, is New Zealand though, so it's it's a disputed thing. That's right, it is. And I'm fine to have co-opted that as, as well. But to come back... To, to a place that does have a very iconic, I mean, just the last decade, as you mentioned, there's kind of, you know, mezcal bars in every city in the world almost. But why was it very important to choose Mexico? And what were those two things that you decided to focus on? I think if you're writing a book in the United States, Mexico is your neighbor. It's a very familiar cuisine. Often I ask Americans what the American national cuisine is, which is the same problem as Australia. How do you define it? So many people are saying tacos because they're part of school lunch, right? So we, we consider it almost as part of this country's cuisine. And I chose Oaxaca, uh, which is Mexico's most multicultural state, and most multicultural city with 16 different indigenous groups, each with their own language, tradition. And again, there's a lot of foodie, gastro-pilgrim attention to Oaxaca because the food is so amazing, because of the multiculturalism, because we're all voyeurs and, you know, slight culinary colonialists, right? <laughs> now we want to fix our colonial gaze onto this ind- indigenous people. And of course, you know, the gaze, the gaze issue is complicated because it's never one way the gaze is returned and sometimes reciprocated, so there's a complicated relationship there too. So in Oaxaca, I'm looking at mole. That is this very elaborate, complex, multi-ingredient, sometimes with 40 ingredients, stew, that flourishes almost as an edible life force. In Mexico and Oaxaca especially, there's so many different kinds of moles. So I'm looking at mole as a representation of Mexico's identity, which is how it is accepted in Mexico. And that identity is mestizo, a mix, mestizo, yeah, of Spanish colonial and indigenous. And the mixture is called mestizaje. And it's really like one of the defining aspects of Mexico's post-revolutionary ideology, because... When the nation forms, it asks itself, who are we? And how do we represent ourselves to, to our own people and to the world? And that seemed like a great metaphor for Mexico to be this mestizo, this admixture of European and colonial. And colonial. The problem with that vision until now, that the white, whiteness predominated, the Spanishness predominated. But now this identity is changing given what's been happening in the world and the, the fight for indigenous rights. So there's a lot more conversation about the indigenous part of this identity and a lot of re-evaluation of mole, because it's not just mole, the black mole and the mole poblano and the red mole, which have so many colonial ingredients. So there's all these new moles that were previously not talked about uh, being part of this narrative. 
And then in Mexico, I'm also looking at the maize tortilla, which is such a symbolic and important part of Mexico's identity. But it hasn't always had, it hasn't always had an easy road because the colonists, when they came, as part of their Catholic, you know, Catholic preoccupations, because it was like a Christian conquest, right? And bread is such an important part of Catholicism, right? It's part of the Holy Communion. So wheat, planting wheat was really a major part of the colonial enterprise, always denigrating the tortilla, always denigrating the indigenous people and their maize culture, always wanting to acculturate them and kind of switch them over to this mestizo way of eating, which involved wheat and bread. So there's a struggle between maize and wheat. So again, we talked about it in Japan. Here is another imported wheat tradition that is also kind of this imperialism. But in the end, maize won over. And it's really kind of part of this patriotic consumerism. It's recognized as part of the national identity. And it's been really celebrated in the last 20 years or so. Well, before we also head to Spain, I, I don't want to miss talking more about you because you were a concert pianist. I don't need to equate music and the, the symphonies of tastes and foods and things and be too obvious, but what was that trajectory from being such a fab fabulous musician to being a food writer? It was purely an accident. I was Music was all I dreamt about. I trained as a pianist. I trained at Juilliard. I wanted to be a famous concert pianist like everyone who goes to Juilliard does. And then like so many musicians, I had a hand injury from overstraining. Hand is very delicate and you're producing all these you know, huge sounds. And I was looking for something else to do. And when we immigrated uh, from Russia, as refugees, we were processed in Italy. We stayed, I think, for two, three months in Rome. So I learned Italian as a child. So I was translating a cookbook from Italian after my hand injury, just to make some money. And I was like, wow, you can make money in cookbooks. There's this you know, thing called writing cookbooks. And my then boyfriend and I said, well, let's try the cookbook. And we came up with a proposal for the book that I mentioned, Please to the Table. And as the book got published, 1990, that incident happens. <laughs> Global thing, Soviet Union collapses. Yeah. So the idea was to write a book about the cuisines of the Soviet Empire, from Uzbekistan to Georgia to Armenia to Ukraine, of course, the Baltics. That was the celebration of the book. Now I'm thinking more, it was an imperialist project. I feel kind of bad. And as the book goes into print, the Soviet Union goes bust. And all my friends are laughing. They say, well, you should make the book a tear-off calendar. There goes Lithuania separates, Kazakhstan is separating. So that was a really interesting exercise and, well, funny exercise. And again, what we started out by talking, how the world can just change and parts of the empire will become independent nations. I've been thinking about nationalism and the formation of national identities and this and food ever since, really. And you've written so beautifully about borscht and what that meant, obviously, to you and your family, but what it means when a war happens. And how do you articulate or how do you respect and articulate and claim 
that dish for you and then your family and share. And like you said, should that dish have to be the source of the political conversation, but it ends up prompting one. Absolutely. So the book has chapters on Paris, Naples, Tokyo, Seville, we didn't talk about tapas, mm. Oaxaca, Istanbul. So for my epilogue, I, was, I had something different in mind. I wanted to do an American Thanksgiving in my multicultural neighborhood of Jackson Heights just to see how recent arrivals from different countries internalized this most important American feast. So I started writing that and then the war broke out in Ukraine in February, last February. And it was absolutely wrenching for us because my mom and I are Russian-speaking Jews from Moscow. But my mom was actually born in Ukraine, in Odessa, which was another very multicultural city. But we identified as, as, as Russian speakers, at least. Um, very cosmopolitan, like what is our identity? And borscht was always part of our diet. My mom always made it. It's a Ukrainian dish, a Ukrainian soup of beets, cabbage, carrots, potatoes, uh, eaten with sour cream, very hearty, very nourishing. And it's part, it was part of the empire. You know, when you have an empire, everyone eats certain foods across 11 time zones of the former USSR. And we've really, for us, it was a dish. You didn't even think of it as having national origins. Yeah, you thought of it as part of your own family history. So when the war breaks out and we're just completely mortified and just devastated by the news, by the footage, a big pot of borscht that my mom made sits in my fridge. And I'm suddenly looking at this and I'm realizing that after five years investigating national foods and identities, I no longer know how to talk about the soup that I grew up eating every day. Because both Russia and Ukraine claim it as its own. Even before the full-scale invasion, Russia already invaded eastern Ukraine. So Russians have been goading Ukrainians, saying, well, it's our dish, and Ukrainians... Of course, we're very indignant at this because it really is claimed as a national dish of Ukraine. So the soup war that at first, when it broke out, you know, in 2019, it seemed kind of funny. Now suddenly becomes a proxy, a symbol of Putin's invasion and Ukraine's resistance. So for the last chapter of the book, I really go through this wrenching process of decolonizing the dish for myself and from myself, about forgetting what it meant for me and what home it represented, because now I hate this home, I hate Moscow, I hate Putin, I don't want to ever set foot there. So I'm reading about it in Ukrainian. And this whole other sort of panorama picture emerges. You know, I'm trying to really understand it from Ukrainian perspective. This great symbolism, you know, this is the dish that the soldiers, the first thing that people eat when soldiers come back to visit their families in the current wars. Think about the de devastation. People are unable to have their lives as they are, to cook their borscht. So people ask me, Does, do you still eat it and has it changed for you? We say, yes, we still eat it, we cook it, but every time that we do, we think about all the people who have lost so much. And it's just so full of meaning and so full, so full of different symbolism. And it's also a reminder that identities can change overnight. So it's, it's difficult. Food is, brings us together. It's um, 
a cause for celebration, but it can also divide us. And it's a symbol of everything uh, from good to bad. And these are all the complications that you tackle so beautifully in the book. And it's such, such fun to read. And we live vicariously through you. A couple of last questions. Firstly, what lights you up? In terms of what makes me happy? Yes. Yes. Travel. Travel. You know, I grew up as someone behind the Iron Curtain. We always dreamt of travel. We were always convinced that we'll... Soviet Union will never collapse and will live the same sad, drab lives, traveling only within the empire. So encountering new cultures, meeting new people, encountering new foods, and learning about the cultures through the foods and sharing it with people, it's, it's something that just makes me so happy. And then when you're at home, and maybe it's borscht, but... What are a couple of dishes that are just staples in your house? Sometimes I think of that Sunday night meal that is just nourishing and relatively easy. Are there a couple of those dishes that you can share with us that might surprise us? I cook a lot of Georgian food from the Republic of Georgia. And one of my favorite simple dishes to cook at home is called chahokbili. And it's basically chicken with lots and lots of fresh tomatoes. And lots and lots of French fresh herbs, like three or four bunches. And you just kind of cook it all together, and it's just so flavorful. I also love, I eat a lot of tortillas. We live in Jackson Heights. We have great tortillas from real nixtamal, from real masa. So day to day, I would have at least two, three tortillas a day. And a slice, a New York slice. This is the first thing I eat when I come back from my travels. Not the Neapolitan pizza, but, you know, the plain New York slice. I, I'm addicted. Do you go to one place in your neighborhood for that slice? Yes, there's a place called Due Fratelli, and despite the Italian name, it's run by Mexicans, and they also sell delicious tamales, which always reminds me that New York is just amazing. Oh, that's brilliant. Anya, thank you so, so much for chatting. I feel... We're all working at our next meal or, you know, inspired to go cook ourselves. So I adored your book and I'll just repeat the title for everyone. It's called National Dish Around the World in Search of Food, History and the Meaning of Home. Thanks again. Thanks for having me on. It was a pleasure. Lit Up is a podcast from Sugar 23. It's hosted by me, Angela Ledgerwood and is produced by Liam Billingham. Mike Mayer and Michael Sugar are the executive producers. The theme music is by Andrei Radovsky. Until next time, bye everyone. know how to book flights and hotels all you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive that's why you need viator book guided tours excursions and more in one place there are over 300 travel experiences to choose from so you can find something for everyone and viator offers free cancellation and 24 7 customer support for worry-free travel download the viator app now and use code viator 10 for 10 off your first booking in the app find travel experiences for you do more with viator
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.